Welcome to Season 2 of the Sales Competition Show, where we share the latest sales performance research, insights, and solutions through in-depth discussions with industry experts. Our goal for Season 2 is to enable our listeners to make smarter decisions based on real-world data and behavioral psychology. Join us for more holistic conversations and discussion about sales compensation and sales force effectiveness that will improve the lives and careers of both current and future sales comp leaders. I'm your host, Nabil Alazam. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Nabil. I always like to start out with the question of how you got into the world of sales comp. So maybe just kind of sharing for the audience a little more about your background, but ultimately how you ended up in this wonderful field that we're in. Yeah, I think everybody's answer to this question is probably somewhat random. Falling into something this this much of a niche. In my case, it goes all the way back to a job I had in college. In late high school and through college, I worked for a large call center company that was growing significantly across the U.S. and ended up merging with a call center company based out of the Philippines. So they were the first company to be able to offer U.S.-based call center services and offshore call center services. And while I worked for that company, I worked in finance for a little while and I got assigned a project where I went around the company and evaluated and offered recommendations on all of the various bonus and commission programs. Because all the call center agents, some of them were salespeople, some of them were outbound sales, some of them were inbound sales, some of them were customer service, or technical support agents. And so they all had some form of a variable or incentive comp plan, but those plans differed significantly based on the nature of the job and the customer that that employee worked on. And so I went around the whole business really with no anchor point. I had no idea that anybody in the world specialized in this kind of work. It was just a project that I had for a while, but I found it very, very interesting. And I evaluated all the programs at an administrative point of view, but also from a design and strategy point of view not from having any backing at all in the field. I had no reference point of what best practices were. It's all just based on just my own thoughts on what I found. So it was really just a project, but a project that consumed my time for a number of months. And then later on, I finished my bachelor's degree, went to graduate school, finished my MBA. And coming out of grad school, the first job that I ended up taking was for one of the sales compensation software companies called Synergy at the time, now called Optimize. So they were a little bit interested in the background that I had on that project work, plus my MBA at that point in time. And so they hired me to help lead implementations and ultimately to do some client management and a little bit of plan design consulting on the side. So really my career in sales comp goes back 20 plus years. I think it was 2000, 2001 when I did the project work, but really full-time came a little bit later. Yeah. I feel like there's always the, you get asked to do it on the side of your desk type of, we need help here. Throw someone at it that, that's good with numbers. Throw someone yeah. at it that understands. But you said something that's very interesting, like the intuitive nature of incentives. If you understand the business and you have a good idea of the outcomes, there's an intuition that you can look at a plan and, and think about what kind of behaviors is going to drive. And kind of the reason why I think great sales comp professionals are actually quite empathetic because you put yourself in the shoe of the salesperson, the customer success person, and say, how would I optimize my plan? How would I optimize my work to maximize my earnings? And I think if you have a good idea of how to kind of bring that together, it naturally forms some kind of understanding of, of what that plan is going to drive. Obviously, having a foundation of the best practices, 
kind of alleviate some mistakes that you could make just by trying to apply intuition. So I guess like, you know, just you've obviously, I think what's interesting is you've done sales comp in a variety of different ways, right? As you mentioned, you, you worked hands-on as a part of the organization on the design. You've owned, obviously, throughout your career, sales comp administration and design, and you've gotten to work on the vendor side. So you've kind of seen the whole gamut of this space. I'm curious, you know, what have been some of the biggest learnings that you've had in your time and as your career has progressed across the different perspectives? That's a great question. I think so much of this continues to come down to the human element. Managing businesses, helping businesses grow requires seeking these intersection points between the right kinds of roles and the right kinds of talent that ultimately deliver the results that a company is going to need to grow. And so I've always really appreciated that sales comp lives at that intersection point. You know, it lives at accurately identifying what the behaviors are and the specific results are that you want out of each specific role, knowing how that fits together with an overall sales and go-to-market strategy and how that ultimately drives the long-term organizational success. So I definitely think there are times when you put on your finance hat and you see that cascade of organizational sales goals for a period of time are X. And so therefore that gets divided between different business units or different regions. Then ultimately that gets divided between ultimately different salespeople. And so there's the pure numbers side of that, but then there's the human element of that. That means that all these individuals somewhere are being told to go do something. Go do this and try to deliver this result. The more you deliver of this result, the more we want to pay you and give you awards and things like that. And so I continue to find it just fascinating in getting to live there at that intersection point and help every business find that connection and clarify it and simplify it and make it as understandable vertically and horizontally in the organization. And so as far as just the lesson that I take from my career on that is, that challenge never goes away, no matter what vertical or industry you're working on or what part of the life cycle a company or business is in, or even geographical differences between in companies, those intersections exist everywhere. And you always have to find them and clarify them. And that leads to good sales comp design, hopefully leads to simplicity in administering the sales comp, and hopefully leads to organizational success if the sales comp is enabling the right behaviors that you want to drive. I think fundamentally, it's sales comp is a dynamic system. It has to be because the go-to-market organization is constantly changing. And you said something in a previous discussion we had where it's around the pragmatic nature of sales comp and kind of like being able to convey that. I guess you step back and you think about how your career shaped this background, this experience, and taking you on this trajectory of kind of becoming a sales comp leader. What do you think drives that credibility to have those pragmatic conversations, to have that kind of, I want to say, like the tough conversations around bringing all these different stakeholders and inputs together into driving towards that outcome that we want. It's not as simple as just saying this metric or drive this behavior. So yeah, I think of a couple of different things. Number one, I think to be successful in sales comp, we have to legitimately understand the business to a certain level of depth. Now, obviously, we're never going to understand each business as well as the business leader for that business we're talking to. 
but we have to be able to speak the language. We have to understand what various factors they're having to account for from their perspective, which I think connects to the empathy concept that you mentioned earlier. And so I think it requires a lot of listening, requires a lot of asking questions, requires a lot of being willing to ask questions that may sound dumb. And I think actually when we ask those questions, it actually has a counterintuitive result a lot of the time because we're showing the willingness to ask those questions. We're showing that we're seeking to learn it. And I think that alone very often can set sales comp professionals apart from other functions. I think if I'm a business leader and I live and breathe my business, but I very often have to work with people in functional areas that aren't, in my opinion, sitting in the business, however you would define that. So I'm talking about people that are sitting in general compensation or an HR or an IT or even in finance. I believe that all those areas have various important things to say to a business leader that would help lead to different decisions. And those, the business leaders credibility that they see in those person will very often depend on how much they think that person understands their business. And part of that is just the humility to ask the question and be able to admit when I don't know such and such thing near as well as you do, but I want to learn it. I want to learn it enough that we can get together to the right decision so that we can bring your depth of business on the depth of knowledge on this business with my depth of knowledge in this subject matter area, and we can arrive at the right decision. They've got to step into the ring with you and you've got to step into the ring with them. And sometimes that's awkward with the questions that you have to ask. But ultimately, I think you come out of it with greater credibility and trust in both directions. The second thing that I think that comes out of that is being willing to share when you disagree with somebody. Now, obviously, doing that with tact, you're not doing it with personal attacks, but to be willing to, if there's a group of eight people and you're one of the eight and all 70 other people are squarely landing on a certain viewpoint, if you feel differently about it, being willing to be the one person out of the eight that differs and being ready to share why and being ready for maybe the other seven people know something that you don't that'll help clarify your position or maybe vice versa. Maybe there is some fact or bit of perspective that you have that they don't have. But either way, I think those situations always provide opportunity for the one person. I think they come out with greater credibility after those things because of the willingness to be in the minority, because of the willingness to put themselves out there like that, I think improves trust in all directions. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. I think a lot of the people hear the other seven and just decide, okay, I'm just going to go along. And that's okay. And that may arrive at a quicker decision because you don't have to have all that follow-up conversation. But I think you miss an opportunity to build credibility if you really did disagree with whatever that was. I mean, I think I want to double click on two parts. The first part being asking questions and the listening. And then the second part of kind of not going with the mainstream, like our job is to push back in those unique times when we're bringing that extra layer of knowledge or experience. But the one thing that's that's interesting to me is in the world of sales comp, you're right, we're never going to know the business itself, how the rep actually goes and executes on every single step of the process, the products, et cetera, et cetera, right? We're not going to know that to the same level of detail. But I think there's an element of what we do need to know. And I find that this is actually something that's missing quite a bit of times is what behaviors are actually done and ultimately what the incentive, what behaviors is this incentive meant to drive? 
Mm-hmm. And I don't mean just the KPI that we're targeting. I mean, actually asking and pushing the sales leadership to help you understand you're looking to drive this behavior instead of what behavior and why. And then it opens up the layers of questions to be able to dig into, is this even the right KPI? Right. And I find that that conversation sometimes glossed over. So I'm curious to get your perspective on that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Feeling back the ending to find out when a sales rep is at this decision point where they can attempt to lead a potential customer down path A or path B, where as a company, you want them to go down path A and path A may be more difficult than path B, but you want them to try. You've got to identify, you've got to identify those things. And what are the barriers that are, that at least the rep will perceive keeping them from going down path A rather than the path B that may be what they've already always done for the last five to 10 years of their career. Or I think that's really important to Uncover those things. And I think asking those questions has a number of other benefits. It helps really uncover what parts of the process the salesperson has real influence over. Understanding when we get to negotiating price, when we get to the points of negotiating product feature inclusions or add-ons to a contract or contract length or where there are out clauses or anything, understanding where does the salesperson sit and navigating those conversations and those decisions helps inform how you would craft the sales incentive plan. Because yes, you do want it to be results-based, but you want it to be results-based with a tie to what the salesperson has direct influence over as much as possible. And you have to ask those questions to really uncover those things. Another thing that I think helps float to the surface when you ask those questions is the more complex industries and organizations very often have multiple sales roles that have different intersection points on what part of the process they own and how they work together. And obviously, you're going to have to solve comp plan challenges for each of those separately. But you have to understand those intersection points and how they actually will work together. And if it's, is it a very standardized model? Or is it different with every single customer? And if it's different, what drives those differences? I think those things are really important because then you've got to understand You've got two different salespeople that are both interacting with the same customer. You want to incentivize them for what they contributed to. And you've got to understand, you've got to get into the weeds on that. I think that's a real difference between functional roles in sales comp versus a lot of those other functional areas where they don't necessarily need to get into the weeds to help drive the right decisions on this. And it's it's interesting because you really have to dig sometimes to get at this information because there's no real source of truth for this per se. If you actually look at, and I find this all the time, it's you talk to sales organizations, you ask a sales leader or sales operations around what is the sales process? Like, let's see the sales process. And sales Mm -hmm. process for the most organizations is defined as here's the stages that our prospect goes through in the different funnels. But it's not laid out to the point, what you called described earlier, that decision tree of, in this key inflection point of whether the rep does X or Y, what path we want them to go down. And that is not as clearly laid out. It's very much as a part of the, sale, the, the sales coaching and management, but getting that information out is so critical. And so it's extra, I think it's actually a much harder lift than we're making it out to, like at least I'm making it out to be right now, but it's invaluable if you get that level of closeness as mm-hmm. a sales comp professional with the sales team, because it enables you to have that pushback and, and truly understand exactly what the sales leadership is striving to achieve with whatever comp plan changes is being rolled out the next year. So I'm curious over 
what have you found the most successful to get into that level of understanding? Yeah, a number of things. One thing that was an aha moment for me at one point in my career was how lacking job descriptions are in helping uncover this level of detail. I find that nine out of 10 job descriptions describe things that a salesperson may be involved in. And they may even use language like, this role will be driving X, Y, and Z. Well, theoretically, you could have a business development role that is generating leads and setting up meetings and a second role that is taking those meetings and hoping to ultimately close deals. But if you're only using language that talks about what a role is involved in and driving, those could technically be two identical job descriptions for the business development person and the sales executive without ever getting into the details of what are their actual parts in the process. And so I've tried different tacks at different points in time. I mean, I think, you know, one that I've done before is developing templates with the specific questions that I think we need to get answered that would apply to any business and then trying to see how a business leader, maybe in cooperation with HR, would do filling out that template and answering those questions. And I would say even there, nine times out of 10, you don't get as much detail as you need or what you were intending through that template. But either way, it ultimately just has to lead to a conversation, has to lead to a conversation and documenting that as best as possible, even if that initial draft of their answer to a template doesn't go as details as you'd like. I don't think there's any way around that direct engaging conversation, the ability to listen and ask more questions on the fly. And it's one of the just the fascinating areas where every business is different, even within the same vertical and industry, all the operating models just have slight differences that everybody at some point in time makes assumptions about those things, or maybe even doesn't even really realize that those differences exist until you start driving in on those decisions and finding like, okay, you described this process that worked like this, where role A did this and role B did this. Is that the same in the Western US as it is in the Eastern US? Is it the same in Texas versus California versus New York? And you start finding out that no, in Texas, they have to do it this way because there are geographic differences in how they cover the territories. And that's very relevant information for how you're designing and administering the sales complex. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like if you don't have that information, if you go into design, bro, the only thing you have is to take the information you're given a literal value and like almost like break it. Like it's what I found is like, if you don't understand the sales process, the only tool set that you have in your arsenal is to basically push back in the sales leadership and highlight, if I did X, this would still generate a good outcome, but is mm -hmm. this the outcome that you want? And you yeah. try to like force the, I always describe like the alignment of if a comp plan is when gamed produces the result that you want, you know, you have a decent comp plan. And if you don't know that you said something earlier on like term length, it's a perfect example of like, you can push back and be like, hey, if I played around with this value, I can have all my deals be zero X term length versus Y term length, and it would produce the same outcome. Are these the same to you? Are they the same value? Are they close enough that it doesn't matter and we're not going to add more complexity to the plan versus, but I think ideally, yeah, I, actually, I really like the questionnaire and kind of like forcing at least some information out in a structured format that sparks or starts the conversation. But I'm curious from a perspective of getting to... If I backtrack to the point you said earlier on kind of like the second point of being in the minority and pushing back when something is not right or you have a strong conviction, 
one, you need to get the seat at the table to be able to do that. And I think that's one point I'd love to get your input on, because obviously you've progressed in your career. And so how you established the credibility to even be sitting at that table mm-hmm. as a sales professional and having that discussion. And then two, you said doing it with tact. And there's a lot of ways to, to solve that part. So I'm curious, maybe on the first part and then, and then diving into the second part, like how do you even get asked to be at that room? There's a lot of times I've seen it where the comp plan is just passed through and it's go execute on this. And in the worst cases I've seen, it, it's communicated to the sales team before it's even passed over to the comp organization to actually execute. Right, right. No, that, yeah. yeah, that can definitely happen. That's a great question. I think it depends on where the person sits in the organization. I'm lucky enough now my seat in the organization I get to establish rules such as no comp plan is approved and no payouts are going out to anybody unless it has followed this process and has the following approvals, which include me. That wasn't always the case, though. So there were times where earlier in my career I had to make sure that appropriate steps were being found. And so a lot of that ends up being you have to find other partners in the organization when you don't have that credibility yet. So, for instance, if you're finding that comp plans are being approved with inappropriate amount of rigor on the design process or even not the right approvals. One of the risks there is huge financial risk, right? And so if you're not part of finance yourself, sometimes sales comp may sit within finance. If you're not part of finance yourself, you hopefully have a finance partner. And hopefully between you and that person, somebody has a connection with the CFO. And so that would be something worth floating up to the CFO level, are we okay that comp plans are being approved that have significant financial risk? We don't know if there are any caps in there. We don't know the details of how this comp plan is getting designed approved. Are they okay with that amount of risk? And they're almost definitely going to say no. And so then you've got a partner there on, okay, let's figure out what level of leadership we need to help institute some governance. Now, even there, tact needs to be applied because somebody is currently successfully getting plans through without approvals. And now that person is going to feel like there's red tape that they didn't have to go through before. I think it's really, really important to, it's a relationship building business here. And I don't know how anybody could have a career in sales comp without there being times that you will make either a decision or a recommendation that there absolutely are going to be times where somebody doesn't like what you're recommending or deciding. And so that puts pressure on the ability to build the relationship at a more personal level with those people so that over time, and this doesn't happen instantly, so that over time, there's a foundation of trust there where they at least, they understand that you're not always going to see eye to eye, but you have a personal amount of trust to the point where they know that you're looking out for the organization's best interests. And that you're not trying to make things more difficult just for the sake of making things more difficult. You are trying to help the business get from A to B, but that you think that there need to be these necessary steps to get there. And they're not arbitrary because there are key other partners that need to have voices in it. So I think a lot of that is personal and it's not instantaneous. It's not instantaneous at all. I mean, right, right now in my role, I'm supporting a lot more businesses than I did before. And my first step in that is literally before I know anything about the comp plans for any of these businesses, I'm going out to many business leaders and just doing personal introductions because I don't know if it's going to be three weeks away or a year and a half away till there's going to be something from that business that's going to require a decision from me. 
And I may have to make a decision that that business or a certain business leader may not agree with. I want there to be at least a small amount of personal trust as a foundation so we can have a conversation about it and that they're not thinking that I'm just oppositional or antagonistic to them. So I just think that relationship building is very, very key. And so I think a lot of these things that I find from a sales comp career involve that willingness to build those personal relationships and take risks with who you're talking with, worry less about levels. Very often as the sales comp person, you may be manager analyst level and you're interacting with somebody that is VP or SVP or above level and finding a way to not be afraid of that and finding a way to be willing to build a relationship with a person that's so many levels different than you. And even more scary, being willing to communicate disagreement to so many levels different from you, even if they're not directly over you, multiple levels over you, and they're off to the side in a different functional area, showing that willingness to do that, I think makes a very, very big difference. And A, doing our jobs in sales comp and B, helps a person's personal career to build those relationships and show that willingness. I mean, so many good points there I want to unpack. It's like, what makes this career so lucrative and so fulfilling is that you from a very early like time in your career have the opportunity to engage with business strategy to such a high level, especially if you're brought in on the design side and the design discussions and, mo- and the planning. And I think it's funny because early on in my career, the way that you got around, and I'm curious to hear your perspective of like the massive gap in your level versus the people in those conversations that are planning was data. The more you could arm yourself with data to come into that conversation, it takes the perception of experience off the table. And I think that this kind of goes back to the element of like asking about sales process and then being able to step away, especially if you're in early in your career where you put in that time and you're not bogged down from eight to five full of meetings. You have that time to really dig in, almost take that input and weave it into a data story that you can come back and present. But I'm curious, does that resonate or do you have any tips for someone? Yeah, no, very, very much resonates. And I think the ability to get data to show what your perspective is on that particular topic, but especially if you can show, I think there's different levels of value of what you can bring. The highest level value would be if there's some example internally that represents the kind of decision that's being made here and where a result happened that what was intended. If you can show that this isn't hypothetical, this is somebody that already happened over here. We designed, this is what resulted. This was not what we were looking for. And the following consequences occurred. That can open up the eyes of the person to realize that you're not throwing out something that has a 1% chance of happening. You're throwing out something that has a 60 to 70% chance of happening. So internal examples, I think are best. When you don't have one, that's where it helps to know other people at other companies doing this kind of work to bounce things off of, whether it's from the consulting side or practitioner side. And then being able to reference, there are a lot of articles and even shows like this one, where if you can point out, here's documentation of this best practice. And we may not have reached the point yet where we have direct examples of that happening, but other companies have, and we can see this is developed as a best practice. I don't think that's the first place a person should always go because there are always going to be people that are skeptical of how best practices will apply to their specific situation. And so it's better to start internally, but you can always be able to find something to bring to the table. So yeah, it's building your credibility. It's finding a way a quicker way to get them to listen. 
Yeah, I remember like there's a very specific example where we showed this is early on in my consulting careers back in the day. We showed volume of activity and customer visits relative to a different cut of the segmentation of the customer base. And it was just one slide and just built a ton of credibility around the need to revamp plants because all of a sudden it just showed to everyone your sales team is putting effort in exactly the opposite areas that you just described as being the most important. And and it's almost like, again, like using that data to diffuse the situation. You don't need data. If you have that internal example, amazing. I think you could also have an example of a misalignment, not necessarily in what they're presenting, but the fact that there's an internal misalignment due to incentives that just highlights some element of credibility that you can bring to kind of as a different discussion point. And, but not, yeah, it's not always possible. And I do think the value of having that network in the community, I mean, this kind of goes back to conversation we had before. It's like, you need peers in this space. And I just thought of another example of something that helps bring that credibility a little bit sooner is from the sales or business leader's point of view. I think many times their perception is that people from other functional areas, whether you call that functional area finance or HR or comp or sales comp, et cetera, the sales or business leader often has the perception that these other areas are more expense focused. They're going to decrease comp expense. My job is less about the comp expense. My job is more about top line and bottom line growth. And so expense is secondary to them. And so I think, I don't think we can take expense off the table as being a factor that needs to be part of the equation. But I think being able to show the business leader that there absolutely are scenarios where you want to pay people more. And that if you as a sales comp person think that everything that there's an example where somebody is being underpaid for the sales or business leader to see that you believe that and that even more importantly, you're willing to go to bat with other parts of the organization that may not have that view, that right there, I think, creates instant credibility, at least with that group, because they very often are thinking, oh, all these people are here to just say no to anything that's going to be a cause increase. But if you show that there may be times that I say no, but there are times that I not only say yes, there are times where I will go to bat for what I think is the right decision. I will go to bat. That creates credibility. And so there are just opportunities like that in all the different directions. You want to be good partners with the sales leader or business leader. You also want to be good partners with the finance person. The finance person needs to be able to see you're not just saying yes to everything that there are. You do understand the impact of pure cost on the P&L. And so I think it goes all directions on any time there's an opportunity to show that you're on that person's side. We shouldn't be somebody that we shouldn't be all yes people. We shouldn't be all no people. There's a lot of elements to very complex decisions in these cases. And so I think just building that credibility anytime we have opportunities for that. I love that suggestion. And I actually like, it's funny because we always talk about this, it's like pay for performance. That's what variable comp is. And rarely... Like it's a big caveat that you are actually paying the best performers. Like that's a very difficult thing to do in the world of sales comp. Because your point is dynamic, it's complex. Like there's all these nuanced aspects of sales and you set targets on certain KPIs or does it penalize some of the best performers? Do we not set the right targets, et cetera? Mm-hmm. I almost wonder if this is actually a really good like tactic for sales comp. Just give me an idea of like maybe creating a framework of how you collect that feedback because I think it happens all the time, right? You have this 
I want to, you hear, oh, this rep just closed this really good deal. This rep just did this. And you see that throughout the organization. But sales comp is the only one that really has visibility across all the organizations and all the teams to basically say, hey, our ranking based off of everything we've heard about sales, the sales reps and the things that they're doing is this rep is above this rep. Yet, did you know that they are actually reversed? And if you actually create a framework to collect almost in a way where you take quota attainment and you take performance metrics that are currently tracked out of the picture and somehow collect from the sales organization examples of reps that are doing well and reps that are kind of uh, performing in certain areas above the average and in a way that we want, and then Mm -hmm. mapping that back to comp. I think that's a fantastic. Yeah, I love that suggestion of kind of building. I, I, I think that's a great way of putting it too. And even showing that when somebody gets a fantastic result that you're celebrating right there with them, that you're happy that that person got that result. You're happy for your organization. You're personally happy for them. You're not sad about the organization owing that person what could be a large amount of money because that's a great success. That's That's the best year they've ever had in their sales career. And you want them to be, to know that you're happy for them. And you want that to be an example for everybody else of we'd love everybody to land deals like that. If everybody could do it, we'd be happy paying those bigger paychecks. We're not grumpy students here trying to hold on to the dollars. If we've designed the comp plans, right, we're all succeeding when these things happen, the more the merrier. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like you talk to most CFOs enjoy, despite the, the stigma of, oh, they don't like writing the big checks. No, no, like they love writing the big checks. Mm-hmm. I think where it hurts is if you don't build the financial governance in place right. to build a plan and exactly. that does pay out. And there's absolutely, I mean, there's been examples where I've seen firsthand where organizations blew out their comp budget by a level where it actually has an impact on EBITDA because it's such a big cost center. But right. if you build the right plans, writing big checks to reps is exactly what you want to do, especially yeah. for the right the top performers and they're observing it. Okay. So like, by the way, that suggestion, I absolutely love it. I want to think through a little bit more in terms of how do you structure the collection of data outside of the financial metrics, but I think it could be insanely powerful for a comp professional, but to dive into something else you said. So in some cases we need to push back, you need to build that and you have to handle attacked where and when is it actually better to compromise to actually drive the right results? I knew this question was going to come up. I think this is the biggest thing as a leader that I grapple with and that I never feel like I've landed on the right answer to it. There absolutely are times where I've compromised and probably like all compromises are designed to feel, they're designed to be a little bit painful for people on both sides of the compromise because you're giving up something that you thought was really important. You're not giving it up completely because you're compromising, but you are. So there's some pain involved. I think part of it, is keeping the big picture of knowing usually, not always, but usually we're making comp plan decisions in one year increments. I would say the majority of comp plans are annual comp plans, not all of them, but a larger number of them. And so compromises aren't always forever. Compromises may apply to that year. And then you may know that you'll be able to revisit the topic again. And it may have a little bit different context at a later point in time that may change the nature of that compromise you made. So I think that's part of it. And then I think part of it is having the big picture of knowing that there are, for such and such business, there are 20 key decisions that are going to have to be made about these comp plans in this one planning cycle. And keeping in mind that with that many decision points, which ones are the most important to you and which ones the least important to you? And 
Sometimes you're going to have to compromise to get the entire thing across a finish line and to do it in a way that you think overall maybe isn't everything that you thought was the right decision, but is 75% what you thought was the right decision. And so I think it's just keeping those, all those things in, in context. But that being said, like always knowing if I'm making the compromise agreement on the right things, I would say I'm always grappling with that and never feel completely comfortable with that I'm doing it too much. Am I doing it too little? Is that I do it on the right things? I don't know, but I always have more opportunities to test it. There's always more decisions. And do you think it is a prioritization at the end of the day? I mean, it's funny because sales comp ultimately from a design perspective is an optimization problem. You're right. You're limited in terms of the concept of like keeping it simple, which is really in my mind, like a bit of a misnomer. It's keep it simple to understand. It doesn't have to necessarily mean the comp plan itself is simple. It just has to be simple to understand, which most of the times is directly correlated, but there's an element of like, you can't have too much complexity. And at the same time, you're trying to optimize this decision tree of behavior. And if you think about all the different decisions that a rep makes their entire sales process, there's no way you're optimizing for every single decision. So it's like, yeah, what element are you, do you take as a higher requirement? And in some areas, it, and then of course, with a sales comp hat on, you have to think about the financial aspects. So then you have to optimize for where do you take financial risk? potentially right. and it is a tough one. Yeah. And especially yeah. where you are in your career. How much credibility have you built up with that business leader? Yeah. Says first time you're kind of going through a planning process with them. Very different. And yeah. And I think one thing that I've told the people when we're going through sales comp decisions, because a lot of times they may be new to the process, not new to the company, not new to sales, but they may not have participated in sales comp specific decisions, is making it clear that all of this is pros and cons. I have never in my career seen a solution that is nothing but pros, no cons to all stakeholders in every direction. If that exists, I've never seen it. Every decision is a list of pros and cons, and those pros and cons are going to differ in number, and they're going to differ in importance, and those lists aren't going to be identical for everybody. But I think part of what we have to do from the sales comp side is help make sure that we're developing the list as completely as possible that there aren't significant cons that nobody has thought of that aren't on the list that are going to derail things six months from now and helping bring that transparency to everybody involved so that we have to understand everything we choose here is going to have some amount of con to it. Are we all comfortable with which set of pros and cons we're picking here? And hopefully you are. And then I think it's a really important thing to help comp committees to understand, especially if they're relatively inexperienced. And then a second thing I think is I use the terminology a lot of, is it a hill I'm willing to die on? On which decision or which principle is one that I would be willing to defend and not compromise on, regardless of who is on the other side of that conversation, and which hills are not the hills that are worth dying on, and that's where you make your compromises. I think everybody has different hills they're willing to die on. I mean, hopefully we all have at least some hill we're willing to die on, and at least principle, from a principle standpoint. But so are the other people in the process. And I don't think that needs to be something that we play games about. I think that's something that we can be upfront about on. This to me is the most important thing of all. And so if we make a decision that goes against this, then it would that decision will be made without my support. And that's okay, being transparent about it. It's interesting because I feel like there's, you're right, there's never a clear answer. And it's all about where, I remember a specific example, it's like the pay curve there's an aggressive pay curve, yet there's a new product. And it's like, okay, 
you're rolling out this new product, you either set quotas at this level, or we have to go with a different pay curve or put a cap. And it's just right. like, you're kind yeah. of saying, I don't I, know where it's going to go. Yep. I don't know where it's going to go. I'll leave the decision to you, but it has to be one or the other because of the impact. So going on a very kind of future, we spent a lot of time talking about kind of career trajectory and path and moving along. So just to kind of think about a future 10, 15 years away, because I think anything past 20 years beyond our career. And so big comes point per se, but like I've had this discussion numerous times and obviously being in the world of sales comp to say this is almost seems like a contradictory opinion, but the world of incentive comp relies on the fact that we pay money on a variable basis to performance. Right. And that, you know, you hear it all the time. It's like, oh, do we even need to pay sales reps variable comp? Do we need to pay sales professionals that, or is that just something that's misnomer? Now, I like the data point of even back in, I think the first earliest recorded commission was something like 5,000 years ago. It's not new. I'm curious to hear your perspective on it and then kind of to ideate on like, what does that future world look like? That's a good question. I've read literature out there about some people thinking that some businesses would move towards a model that is less focused on variable comp. I think it depends on the nature of salespeople. I think the reason that we have the variable compensation or incentive compensation, sales compensation, whatever you label it, I think the reason that it's such a key factor today is because there's an assumption that the salespeople are highly financially motivated, maybe more so than other roles, yep. competitive and willing to make certain sacrifices for those two things because they want to win. They want to have the highest ranking out of X number of salespeople. They want to be the best paid. They don't want that to be hidden. That's a key factor in the lifestyle that they have. As long as that's the case, I think there's an important part for variable compensation to play. Now, theoretically, will we have some cultural movement away from having people that have that nature to them? I don't see why that would happen. I mean, I think the population keeps growing. There's always going to be people that are wired that way. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's okay. And people that are wired that way very often could be highly successful salespeople. And variable compensation is going to tie directly to that. They're going to want to be rewarded better when they deliver the above average, above normal results and beat their peers. They want that validation. They want that extra reward. That's why they're willing to work more hours at times and do more traveling than most other roles require, because that's what's important to them. Theoretically, if for some reason there are a lower number of people in the world that fit that description, and theoretically, if there was a less of a need for people to directly partner with potential customers and explain various products and services and help find that match and get a sale done, theoretically, I can see a world where, yeah, it would be less of a focus on but I just don't see that happening. I think yeah. there are always going to be people wired that way. Yeah. I mean, I think you said it probably. It's like, I think it's the profile. And by the way, I'm definitely in the camp of, I think sales comp is here to stick around for a while. And I think there's a nuance in terms of like, I think the more data that we have, it doesn't make sense to not create variable comp program for sales because the whole premise behind variable comp is I'm robbing the poor to pay the rich because it's yeah. way more valuable for me to keep that nine, like, in the tech world, we you know, define like the 10x engineer. If there's a way where you could highlight and find the 10x engineer to the 10x sales rep, you want to pay them 10x right? as they deliver, or at least some multiple mm -hmm. relative to the average. And I think that's what variable comp enables you to do. 
And the data point that I would have is if you look at the gig economy, and I'm not talking just the gig economy of the Uber or Lyfts of the world. I mean, like you see more and more online kind of the ability to purchase outcome based, like transactional consumption of services and goods. The ones that are able to do a better job, the ones that are able to do a faster, higher quality are commanding a higher price. And so right. you think, okay, in a world where we truly sales doesn't look like the way it does today, and it looks drastically different because of some sort of technology innovation or whatever, you're still going to pay for a channel to get access to the customers. And that in a way likely is going to be some sort of variable component because you're willing to pay more for higher quality or faster speed. Yeah, I'm thinking of a term right now that I've never really heard applied to this area, but sometimes in the healthcare world, you hear about value-based care. Incentive compensation is at least trying to have value-based compensation. It's trying to pay people the most that are creating the highest value. Yes. At least the people creating the lowest amount of value. That's what you're trying to do. Not all jobs are as easily quantifiable. Yes. Right? I would say the majority of jobs aren't as directly quantifiable to do that. And sales is as quantifiable as it gets. Not perfectly, but more than most. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I mean, even, even some of the deal mechanics we were talking about earlier. I mean, a five-year term commitment is much more valuable to the business than a one-year term commitment. And it's funny, because everyone talks about TCV or ACV type metrics, mm-hmm. but you rarely incorporate the valuation multiple. You're a public company. There's a valuation multiple on your revenue. Right. How much value does this one deal, this one process create? So yeah, it's a very, yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. Um, Value-based compensation, VBC. Yeah, love it. Well, I know, Josh, this has been an amazing discussion. I think I've left with a bunch of little things to kind of go and dig into. I love the idea of kind of creating a feedback mechanism to kind of highlight different levels of performance relative to to actual comp and, and how you can almost optimize. But before we go, I'd love to maybe two questions here. One is from a resource perspective, up and coming sales comp professionals, sales leaders, what are recommendations that you have in terms of places to go access knowledge and kind of those benchmarks that you're talking about outside of their organization? Great question. I mean, obviously, World of Work has a lot of resources out there. You know, it's one repository of them. But finding and watching shows like this where you get to learn from other professionals, there are lots of folks out there that, that you can learn from. And then Harvard Business Review occasionally doesn't very often have articles directly on the topic of sales comp, but often does have articles on ancillary topics, but all that stuff. I mean, if just by going out of your way to read that stuff and be able to have the sources that you could cite, that alone sets a person apart in conversations. And so I think it's very worth the time to go and do that. And the more you do it, the more you start seeing there's a lot of alignment there. It's very often that you read something that just completely goes principally against the other things that you read, but you start to build that knowledge base and see there is a certain logic to how this can be done right. Um, yeah. Everybody has the same methods, but then there are a lot of resources out there like that. Yeah, 100%. And then one last question, any recent books or any books that you'd recommend for someone in the world of sales comp? And it doesn't have to be a sales comp book, just something that you think. Going back to the concept that I think is, as sales comp professionals, we need to do our best to understand the businesses. I think it helps reading business literature. I mean, personally, one of my favorite writers is Michael Lewis, who's written a wide variety of books, not all on business topics, but I read everything instantly that he comes out with. And most of them do give stories of startup stories and Wall Street stories and things that just help you understand the business world and even understand 
just where the heads of business leaders and entrepreneurs are so that you can ask those questions and I think helps improve your boldness to be willing to ask the right questions and get answers and ask good follow-up questions and all that helps build a person's career. So anything by Michael Lewis would be my first step. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think there's so much business context that you have to be aware of as a sales comp professional. And the faster you can kind of climb that ladder of the awareness and maturity of how businesses operate and how business leaders are thinking, yeah, the faster you can progress yourself. I yeah, couldn't agree yep. more. I also like Michael Lewis's stuff. I think there's a new book that I've added to my list. I forget it just came up with. Yeah, you just had one on Sam Bankman-Fried. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. On yeah. crypto. Yeah. Again, I just want to thank you. I think, yeah, obviously having sales company professionals and leaders like yourself come on and share your insights with everyone else. And I really found the discussion today very, very, very compelling. So thank thank you, you, John. Happy to be here. Really, really enjoyed the time. The Sales Compensation Show is brought to you by Forma AI, the first sales compensation platform designed around the agile methodology of CompOps. To learn more about how Forma AI can help design, execute, and optimize your sales comp strategy, visit Forma.ai. Find us by searching for Sales Compensation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. On behalf of the team here at Forma AI, thanks for listening.